you know, it was violent, was hit by a petrol bomb on his helmet that engulfed, you know, his upper body and I've not seen skin leave a, a torso like it before. His tattoo was just, it would come off, it dots, skin was just dripping off. It wasn't textbook, it was far from it. It was carnage, chaos, disorientation. And when we were gonna commit, there was no going back. We hit Iraq in 2004 at the uprising. And then later on after, I think it was the 1st of June, uh, Johnson Bahari was then hit by, you know, a rocket propelled grenade launcher, pretty much direct. When we talk about becoming a true leader, I don't think there's a better person to tell his story than Brian Wood, or Woody, as he likes to be called. He served for 17 years in the British Army. He was involved in the Battle of Danny Boy in Iraq, and he led the first bayonet charge in 25 years. He was awarded the Military Cross for his bravery, and his whole life has been adapted into a book and a BBC drama called Danny Boy. If you are looking to gain the respect of people around you, if you are looking to become a true leader, then Brian in this podcast will show you how to do it. This is the Into the Mind podcast. And my name is Harrison Brown. If you're watching or listening, I hope this helps. Your family has over 300 years in the military. Do you think that you were kind of born for a military role? Or where, where did it kind of begin? I think military was always, you know, spoken about in the family. I'd see my dad in his uniform, you know, most mornings. So it was always there. But my dad would never force the issue. Mm. He was, you know, similar to where I am now with, with my boys. Whatever they choose to do, that... I will support and he was the same he would support me and to be fair I was destined to be a footballer like many I uh, didn't make the cut but I was at Chelsea when I was younger and really? then I went yeah then I went to Reading and then I was released um, because I wasn't strong enough I, mm. like, I hadn't developed and they just said that they weren't going to take a risk on me so um, yeah after that big knockback I mean that was the first experience of sort of not making the grade mm. and having to sort of understand why, because football was my life, it was my passion. And um, that was the first big knockback, really, that, of, that I'd experienced. But yeah, I mean, my sort of secondary course of action was, was the military, because it's kind of what I'd seen most mornings with my dad in uniform and my brother, he was um, off serving as well. And um, it just was really appealing to me because my dad would talk about this brotherhood, mm. this team, this organization, this institution with so many attributes. And also the biggest one was making a difference for this country. That's what my dad always used to say, just make a difference. Whatever you do in life, try and make a difference. And mm. for me, it's a big difference. You know, trying to um, yeah, help support this great nation. So it was always around. Obviously, we've got loads and loads of family history. I mean, my great granddad, my granddad, um, my dad, my brother. My dad's got like 10 brothers. 
and mm. most of them served as well. And yeah, so it was, that maybe had been a b- bit of an influence after I never made it as a footballer. Yeah. But seeing my dad in uniform and, and the pride that he used to take in his uniform and, you know, it was nice. It was good to see that from a from a young age. And also the sort of the military discipline and, and values and mm-hmm. making sure that we understood home values. Like within the military, it's like values and standards are the holy grail mm-hmm. when you have got to really make sure that you're you're on them and you understand each value and um and what they actually mean they're just not letters mm. they actually mean something but my dad actually you know made me understand them a lot earlier than than most because of what he believed in and and the values that he really believed in at home mm-hmm. and that was like making sure we had dinner at the table together the way we spoke to my mum, you know, had to be, you know, courteous. You know, we needed to display selflessness, mm-hmm. helping others. My, my dad was like a master at that. You know, what he's done for others is incredible. And, you know, people always remind him how much he has done, whether it's in sport or whether it's helping people um, who need it within the charity arena. So, yeah, he was a big impact. I always talk about my dad and how much, yeah, he, I don't know, showed me the way, I think, as yeah. a as a young man, because as far as I'm concerned, he's my hero. Yeah. Obviously, I love my mum to pieces. Yeah. I've recently just seen them, actually, yesterday. But my dad, he was just like, that's who I wanted to be. Yeah. And still want to be, like. Yeah. I think there's this huge influx of people that want to join the military at the moment and I think it's partially because people maybe struggle with a purpose and I think that the military gives them that structure and that purpose to move forward um, and I think the brotherhood is of the military is kind of partly to do with that because you do have people that are relying on you and you're relying on people um, and I think that gives you that that purpose in life do you think that that's quite yeah. valid? Yeah, it gives you an understanding and a belonging as well. It gives mm. you an identity, you know. So if you're lost and you're soul searching, mm. you know, you can really gain a, a, a strong identity within the military and you can really flourish. You can put yourself on all different types of courses. Mm. Um, you can you travel the world, you know, you, you, you're operating and working so close with um, with other men and women. It's, it's such a tight organization. And like you say, with structure, people need structure in life. Yeah. You know, and it gives you that. It gives you the time that you've got to be at a place with the right kit, what you're going to be doing. You know, there's, you have to be, you know, physically able to to conduct the role that you're in, but mm-hmm. you get trained and educated for that and invested in within that. So I, I've got a love affair with the military. It's, it's great. You know, it's my my son's in in two power now. You know, he's doing his thing, and um, I'll always support it because I just think they're the top five percent of this nation. You know, we talk about it's not just operational commitments as well. We talk about if there's floods, then the British military yeah will will be involved. If 
the vaccinations, the rollout, yeah. the British military were involved. If there's a strike at the airport, the British military will step up and go and fill shoes. Mm. It's just firefights, fire strikes. The military will step up and become firemen. Yeah. And 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 firewomen. It's just there's just more than meets the eye with the military leadership. You know, it just you are at the 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 highest level mm. of understanding leadership and and what that looks like. Management is the same. You know, you get to understand the characteristics of it all because you're educated in slow time and um and you're given the tools and then it's down to you how to then become this manager this leader because you're you've you've given so much mm. information and on that so so you you describe this process of being given these tools by this incredible um brotherhood um what kind of tools did you did you receive when going through training for the military in terms of the the management style and also um, and also the respect. I think that a lot of being a manager is just having the respect from your colleagues yeah. and not um, telling them when they do something wrong, but instead encouraging them when they do something right. And I think that's the most uh, effective management kind of style. Yeah. Were you learned about that when you first joined? Yeah, like you making so many mistakes. Mm. So many, it's like you're young. I was 16 in nine months when I joined. Mm-hmm. So I'm like, you're 16. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. I left at home at 16 and nine months to go into this military organization, which was full of discipline, and full of respect, full of young, hungry men. Because I was in the infantry, so it was, mm. in, in, and in my time, it was all male. Now it's different. Women can join the infantry now, but yeah. in my time, it was just all male. So there's a lot of testosterone. There was a lot of energy. Yeah. Um, but with energy, you make some rash decisions. And yeah. You get a lot of stuff wrong. But do you know what? It's part of learning. Like, you never fail, really, within the military. You just, you, you learn a lot. Mm. You know, failure is a punchy word. And it, I don't like using that word. You know, you learn. Mm. You make mistakes. You figure out why you made them mistakes. You learn from it. And then you move forward. And um, a lot of instruction instructors are like that. And they really invest in, in, in showing you the right way. And they expect you to make mistakes because mm. it's life. It's, everyone makes mistakes. But if you're making them four, five, six times, that's a problem. Mm. So they make sure, look, that's not acceptable. Sort it out. Sort it out. Yeah, yeah. There's standards here, and you're below par, so you've got to sort it out. I've showed you this like four times. Mm. What aren't you getting? So then sack them off. Yeah, but they have conversations. Why aren't you, you know, getting this? And it could be anything to do with weapons. It could be field craft, mm. map reading. You know, some people do take a little bit longer to learn, and you know, and kind of make it stick than others. Yeah, but. You know, you shouldn't be talking about something the sixth, seventh time. Yeah. But it happens sometimes, and it's down to you as a as a leader, as an instructor, to not just sack the person off because mm. he's not. It's like, what can you do extra? You know, to make sure that they these people do understand what you're teaching, and that's yeah. going above and beyond. You know, you as an individual. 
I think that's a great point that you make as well about you know when when it comes to the fourth or fifth or the sixth time right get get your act and I think that in uh, specifically in business and management what I've seen is when there's a lack of respect between the manager um, or the sergeant or whatever it is in, in the military and the the uh, sort of the layer below them they don't have those tough conversations so there's a lack of respect because they haven't challenged and then if they don't challenge a mistake and they keep allowing it to happen then when they do challenge it the guy or the girl or whatever it is is kind of like why are you challenging me now yeah. um, you've never challenged me before so it is knowing how to have those tough conversations yeah is there a kind of learning that you took from the military in order to understand how to have those conversations with people i think you have to have these conversations because when we go operational and go to foreign fields mm -hmm. then you know we, we are preparing to war fight mm -hmm. and if you can't have these challenges or these conversations back in barracks then they're going to have a detrimental effect in on operations fields. absolutely mm -hmm. because if there's something what hasn't been the air hasn't been cleared and you're going into an environment where you're hyper vigilant you're under so much pressure then it will come to a boil so you have to have these grown-up conversations to say look mm -hmm. you know we're going away in six months you're not at the criteria or at the standard or whatever a conversation it is you have to get it cleared up. So we're, we're acutely aware that that needs to happen before we end up going away. Yeah. Even on exercises, like, so it's not kinetic, it's not war, but you're still training. But you train to such a high level that there is still a lot of pressure. You're, you're being examined, you're being looked at through a microscope because, and also as a, an individual, you want to progress through the ranks. Mm -hmm. So you have to make sure you're all over your stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, and these conversations, they're difficult, but, you know, you have to have them. I think without them, you don't grow. Of course. And, you know, if, if somebody is in a senior position, they've got there for a reason, and it's up to them to teach the, the, the people that want to be in their position so that they can then move up and the people below them can move up. And that's great management is, a, is having someone that can step into your shoes. And I was listening to a, a podcast with you last night and you were saying, um, you were talking about one of your uh, tours and the, a private security or a private security, it was a private security, had trained one of the army recruits how to drive an armored vehicle, mm. um, even though he didn't need to because he was yeah. private. Yeah. And because of that, it might have saved his life. Yeah, it was a private soldier actually, the driver. So... And he's actually was awarded the Victoria Cross. That was Johnson Bahari. So he had a bit of foresight and was like, like worst case, if I'm hit, someone else needs to jump in and drive this because not everyone is driver trained, especially an armoured vehicle. Yeah. So he was like, when there was downtime, he was proactive with that downtime. Mm -hmm. So and that's like as a private soldier, that's going above and beyond because a lot of people don't think like that. Mm -hmm. So he said to me, he's like, got the lads around and said, right, if there's something happens to me or other drivers, this is a basics on how to get this armored vehicle moving. And he showed the lads, like each day, he showed them how to start it up and how to put it into drive and what you know what needed to happen once it was you know, in flow. Yeah. So he'd done that. But going back to um, sort of the education piece is in that belonging, in that brotherhood, they get around each other. So if someone's struggling, mm. sometimes as the 
the instructors, the corporal or the sergeant really don't need to engage because the lads will get around each yeah. other and and show them the rope. So it's it's kind of you've created this incredible team yeah. that are as one. So you don't really have to get involved unless it's like really bad. Something serious. Yeah. yeah. Because they deal with it in-house mm -hmm. because there's some people who are not young soldiers but who are very good and they will be like, well, I can show them how to do that. We'll just repetition. We'll just keep yeah. doing it and keep doing it and to keep doing it muscle memory until you get it right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's the military create that mm. because it is one big family and they don't want to see anyone struggling as mm. a... As lads, you're like looking around thinking, oh, he's like having a hard time there, but we'll leave him, we'll come away. And that may be something which is a little bit different from the military to civilian life, where mm. some people would let you sink. Yeah. Where in the military, that's just not, it's not heard of. I think that's a really important thing because the most toxic people, I don't want to say toxic, but the most, um, the people that sink normally are the ones that don't help others. Yeah. From what I've seen, and I've experienced it within business, the people that, offer you the hand and try and bring you up with them understand that there's enough pieces of pieces of the cake for everyone but the pieces that are talk have that toxic mentality and don't help each other within business are normally the ones that sink yeah um, and i think that that army mentality of the brotherhood and helping each other out in terms of right listen one guy's struggling let's help him before it becomes an issue yeah is so so important absolutely um, and i think that people in civilian life can really take a huge piece of that and like yeah. and learn and try and help other people when they're when when they need it yeah um is there a certain point in time that you've had to give that helping hand to a to a, a colleague or a or a brother uh, in arms yeah i mean it happens all the time it's 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 not uncommon for people to struggle on fitness you know i was i would like to think i was you know, I prided myself on my appearance, how I looked and, and how I delivered on, on the physical events on, you know, because I knew if you were, if you were fit, then you had more of an impact because you can lead and control at the most intensive situations. And that was apparent when I did go operational. So there was a lot of people who went on that sort of level who needed remedial, but these people you know, they just need a bit of investment, reassurance that they can get to the level what is expected with a training program. You know, whether it's first thing in the morning, you get up and you do a bit extra or in the evenings that you do a bit, bit extra because self-motivation can get you, you know, to where you need to be. But sometimes an arm around the shoulder Creating a program for someone is infectious and that gives someone the, the drive to, to really push on. Um, but also there's an expectation in the military and that's discipline. If you're not fit and you're not maintaining the standards, then you know your, your values are, are, are questioned because it's not money or a project that's been affected, it's human life. Because when you do go operational, if this individual is not at the standards where he should be, then he has an effect on the rest of the team because he's not at a standard where he should be. And I just wouldn't have it. My standards were pretty high and those who 
who've operated with me or who have worked with me know that you know you have got to be on your game yeah and there's no excuses because you would be given all the tools mm. and all the time to get to where you need to be and if you're not producing then yeah i'm sorry you ain't you ain't, you're not coming operational because you yeah. just have a massive effect on on the others yeah that's it's an interesting thing you were discussing there especially about the I, th- I think do you, do you get any kind of emotional training when it comes to the army or is the brotherhood kind of what keeps you sane in essence um because i think that when you do go out to these uh on these excursions and and, and do become operational it can have a serious mental toll on people especially from what you've seen um, or what they have seen is there any kind of emotional support within the army is there's a lot it's a lot better now yeah when i was away scrapping it was there was not a lot there mm. early days um but they've learned and now they've they've acted and there's like you know, sort of trauma risk management when people have been away there's like um decompression to talk about what's gone on the last within your tour or if there's sort of a traumatic incident that's happened then you're encouraged to talk about it mm-hmm. which is important where with us it was just like you've been fighting like mad next day you're you're in the house like mm-hmm. try and get back to normal and it's it's really difficult because when you've been hyper vigilant for half a year it's a long time six months is yeah. how long you're out on tour for maybe a bit longer to then just come back and just switch off it's it's really really difficult it's hard i don't think no there's there's no perfect way to even describe it because everyone reacts different to when they come home mm. but like i said there is there is um courses or uh, elements of of trim now mm. within the military and they they do a lot now for soldiers which is which is right because yeah. even soldiers who are abroad you know they just can't on a friday pack up and and, and go and see their families yeah. and these are young young soldiers like 18 19 years old who are away from home it like say let's take cyprus as an example mm-hmm. who are in the block maybe a bit isolated on their own other people other others are away on courses you know, how do you deal with the isolation of these individuals? Because if you leave them, that's when it comes a bit of a problem. But now there's methods that are in place for that. Because they can't just jump in a car and come home. They're in Cyprus. They're not going to get on a flight and just come back for the weekend. There's It's more than that. But yeah, they, they, it's definitely get, getting better on what I've heard. I've been away now for the military for a, for a good while. But I do a lot of... Um, talks now within the military and i'm aware of what's what's going on with like sort of op courage which is like a team that will go around and and talk about physical and emotional resilience and you know elements of other people's stories that were will be spoken about and you know what was right what was wrong what we should be doing and 
and uh, and what we need to implement as we move forward and it's definitely the right thing to do for sure so yeah they're they're growing as an organization as well that's amazing and i i think that um you know there's so many sectors which really need that support because i think uh, mental health like everything is a muscle so you need to um keep exposing yourself to those uncomfortable situations that you, you don't want to make a scab and then every time the scab rips off you you, you explode yeah um and you know everyone's had uh not to the same extent as you but everyone has mental issues that they probably need to deal with including myself yeah. um and i think it's so important for people especially leaders like yourself to talk about that so that others can follow and be inspired um when we talk about mental resilience we'll get to your marathon running which by the way i think is insane <laughs> um but to start with talk to me about iraq and um kind of kind of briefly what what happened and um how you managed that team in the scenario that you were in because the battle of danny boy was it was i mean wild. chaos it was i, I mean wild yeah how, so how did you manage that the sponsors of this podcast are, of course, Chisholm Hunter. When it comes to the military and it comes to life in general, timing is of key importance. And thankfully, Chisholm Hunter have 29 stores throughout the UK and are industry leading in luxury watches. They sell watches from Omega, Tudor, Vacheron Constantin, Blompan, and many, many more. If you are looking for your next timekeeping companion, then make sure you head to chismhunter.co.uk. That's chismhunter.co.uk. And on that note, let's get back to the podcast. Yeah, so before we actually go away on operational tours, you do a pre-deployment. So you're working together six months prior to even going away. And when I'm talking about working together, you are away and you're living with each other because this is what you're going to be doing on operations. You go through all different scenarios um, from doing basic patrolling to doing um, urban exercises, which is fighting in built-up areas, to, you know, improvised explosive device lanes, what you need to do if, if you get casualties, multiple casualties, how to triage. So you are tested all of the time, and it's repetition as well. So you're put under so much pressure as a leader. And I was 23 years old when I went on my first, like, not my first tour, because I'd done two tours of uh, Kosovo prior to going, to going over to Iraq. But the principles didn't change. You know, you'll still go away and do pre-deployment. You'll still go away and be tested at a very high standard with a lot of pressure. Um, because you, you need to, people need to, or the higher sort of management team are looking at you to make sure that you're good enough and at a standard to go away in operations. Because if you're not, you'll you'll fail and you won't be either lead battle group or your regiment won't go away. So you are tested and tested and tested. So you get this incredible team cohesion. You get to understand what makes people tick. Um, you know what's what's important to individuals. How to get the best out of individuals because you're working with them day in day out. Day in day out, and you're you, you know you're sleeping in the same compound as these people. So you can, and you soon get to know them really well that if something at home is quite not right mm -hmm. because of the, the way the personalities that you get to know and understand, it's different. 
then you know there's kind of something's playing on someone's mind and that's kind of the how intimate you are with each other because you are just on it every day and you get to know these people so so well even if you don't get on on a professional level it's irrelevant yeah you're on it together because like i say you know everyone needs to be on the same mission everyone needs to be focused and everyone needs to make sure that when they go away they can have a devastating effect once you know there's an escalation of evil so we have to make sure we're all on the same song sheet we're fit we're robust but also we understand the intent and mission command which is so important so you do that for six months before you even go away and then um we hit iraq in 2004 at the uprising so we were i say we were quite unfortunate really people would be like yeah we loved it it was the first time we was out there absolutely full-on war fighting from start to finish but i see it as a little bit unlucky because there was no slow time um, orientation there was no real uh, handover takeover process which normally that's what we do we do a full scale like handover this was like a fighting crazy handover takeover trying to understand you know the the areas that you're in the vulnerable points the vulnerable areas the spot codes and you're trying to take all this in but you're fighting like mad for the first time and it's it was for me personally really really hard to take it all in to understand what i'm doing um to then try to command and lead with soldiers who have been in Iraq for the last six months who are all over it, who get it. And it's like us for the first time experiencing kinetic warfighting and, um, and how you're reacting to that as well. Cause you're always, you get the, given the best training and you deliver, you know, the best practice, but you never know how you're going to react until you're in that situation and shit hits the fan. And that I, I used to question myself thinking, I wonder how I'm going to react when I'm under effective enemy fire and it's like real time because you never know and it's fight or flight. And um, this was the first time I was reacting when it was like real life, full on fighting. And, um, but flexibility is a principle of war. You've got to be flexible. You know, they say in the military, no plan survives contact. So you can plan and plan and plan. When it goes noisy, there's always going to be something that you either missed or there's something that you have to change because it doesn't suit what you thought originally that was going to happen. But you just have to evolve and, and be flexible. Don't let it overwhelm you and, and just keep keep moving forward. And that's what I was doing at, like at a young age as a lance corporal. So I wasn't a tactician at this point. I'd only done a junior NCO's carder. So I was trying to figure out you know, what sort of leader that I was. Um, I try to embrace the chaos, which is it's, it's quite difficult sometimes, and um, and lead with integrity and and with courage, and um, yeah, it was it was a it was a tough tough tour for for many reasons, and um, obviously the Battle of Danny Boy it was it's a very famous battle in its own right for a number of different reasons from going into you know, heavily defended positions across open ground, like our greatest generation did, to then years later have the public inquiry um, of 
murder, mutilation and mistreatment from from our actions that day, which were headed up by Phil Shiner, who was um, stripped of his honorary decorates for basically it was deliberate lies and reckless speculation and ingrained hostility. But it still lasted for five years. So it had a big um, impact on my sort of my mental well-being really with with all that pressure but going back to um danny boy you know we were ambushed and um we were given orders to to basically counter what we were up against and that was to go and close and destroy the the enemy stronghold and um you know under ex- extreme pressure uh like i said across open ground we still had to plan um, we call it a cigar moment in pure, you know, pressure situations. You're still entitled to, you know, have your moment to try and figure out how you're going to get from A to B and what that looks like and have some courses of action if something happens like casualties or, you know, if we come across enemy death, that there's another position that we have to, you know, consider as well. So there's a lot of planning phases. And even as a young 23-year-old, and as you know, a leader of men, you have to plan and prep, and then commit, and then you just have to give it everything that you've got. And that's what we did. I mean, we was under a lot of pressure. They, like looking back, I just think, how do we even do that? Um, but you know, we achieved it by working as a as a team, by believing in each other's ability I, I'm sure we had a little bit of luck because this was the first time that anyone's ever done anything like this that I was aware of I mean in this generation of going across open ground into into defensive positions and um, we were just about to do it so yeah we just worked as uh, there was five of us on the ground there was me another commander and who was more senior than, than what I was come up with a plan we then bounded forward in two teams, a team of three, which was me and two others from my vehicle, and two lads who joined us a bit later on. Um, they would then move forward. So we'd always have one foot on the ground. Leapfrog. So, leapfrog. Yeah, like leapfrogging. So we'd always have um, one foot on the ground, we call it, mm. covering our, our movements, basically. It's, we call it fire manoeuvre. And uh, just approach that position mm. and... Um, you know, it was violent. It was there was a lot of trauma on the on the battlefield. That was the first time I'd seen an enemy forces or a human being killed uh, and dead. And, and there was a lot. These bodies were hit by some like big um, sort of weaponry. Thirty millimeter is um, a, a huge caliber to be hit by. And uh, you can only imagine the, the the carnage that was in and around. Uh, there was a lot of verbal exchange at this point as well, because there was still fighters who surrendered, who put their hands up. And then you have to go into, I mean, we talk about courageous restraint. So when you're when you're at an all time level of adrenaline which is an out of body experience when you're fighting for your life and it's and you're war fighting in close quarter fighting it's you can't really explain it it's like a full on 
out-of-body experience. And when people have been trying to kill you and then you're so close to them and they surrender, having that courageous restraint and that professionalism to like not fire mm -hmm. because they have now not got any weapons, it's hard to get it right. And sometimes you don't get it right because you're so up against it you make a you know you, you make a wrong choice but there was no wrong choices that were done we we you know we seized fire there was people were looking at me to make another sort of yeah make another decision i was like what's going on here it's the first time i've ever been in a situation like this all of their weapons were like lined up um, because it was an ambush so they were all lined up like we would set an ambush and get all the sort of ammunition out ready, line up the sort of RPGs, and you know, there's 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 pictures of of this when I do my presentation, just to give you an understanding of what we we're up against. I mean, it was a full-on pre-planned attack on us, and then I've got to sort out now the prisoner of war, which are the militia fighters. Now I've got to try and like move them away from the from the dead, which were was so many bodies in and around, and I've got to figure that out. And um, all of this when I knew that there were still enemy fighters out there. Mm. So we were in the actual positions with them and it was just like, it was horrendous if I'm honest, mad. Mm. And when you you describe this process of then you, you exit the vehicle and then you kind of leapfrog your way there with, with your team, how did you lead that team? In terms of like, do you think it was the respect and their core values for you um, that, that, that drew them over the line with you and allowed them to follow you? Do you think you kind of led by example there? I think you've got to. I'm, I'm always one to do something that, you know, hopefully would empower some others. You know, I wouldn't expect people to do something that I'm not prepared to do myself. So me getting out of that vehicle first was important to me to go into like a bit of a holding position to then get an understanding of what's going on because in the back of a vehicle it's really disorientating and confusing so I wanted to just get to like phase one which was you know a bit of an area that would give us cover from view and cover from fire and then I can then go and have a look at what's going on but like I said before you've 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 created this incredible bond six months prior to where we're at at the moment so you know you've you've shown these soldiers the best of you and the worst of you because you do get things wrong and you have to tidy up and they've seen that they've been on this process with you they've gone into the scenarios and the situations with you on repetition so they they get it this is now real so what we've been practicing now we've brought into real time albeit it doesn't happen very often going into positions like that but we'd still plan for it and practiced so that's a that's got a lot to do with it as well. Sort of instinctive. I think so, and also it's you know you're always we talk about accountability. So when you go through these scenarios and you're you're picked up on different areas that you can do better on an after action review, we all then get together and we're accountable. So lads will say, you know, I should have done X, Y, and Z next time. I know that needs to you know, I need to work harder on that, or you know I should have been on that casualty quicker you know I should have had the tourniquet out ready and prepared you know I now know that I need to implement that 
So you're always sort of accountable for what you're involved in. And you just, I think it's just with that cohesion, the time that you're with each other before you even go away, you get it and you can ask and you can demonstrate and no doubt they'll follow because it's what our, our job is as well. It's not to question orders because people say, oh yeah, but that was a bit of a barking mad order. But what, define a barking mad order. Look, we were ambushed, they were set, we weren't quite set, but we counted it, you know, and, and we're here to tell the tale. So actually what we did was right and we got the you know the job done. Yeah. Yes, it wasn't perfect. They they say in the press it was like the textbook. It wasn't textbook. It's was far from it. It was carnage, chaos, disorientation. But we achieved the end state, and that was to close and destroy and capture, you know, the enemy on that position. And we did it by working together. That overriding belief that we could do it. And when we were going to commit, there was no going back. That wasn't even in the the, the the quick battle quick battle orders, the QBOs as we call it. It was mm -hmm. no. Once we go, we go. If we have a casualty, once the position's clear, we'll come back and deal with the casualties. Mm -hmm. And that is just the, the full on belief of the intent. Yeah. Because once you get hold of that intent, you know you've got to do everything to achieve the mission, and that's what it was to yeah. just get amongst it. And so you have this absolute chaos um, with, with, with this battle and then you have the kind of aftermath, which is obviously everyone went through a huge amount of trauma um, and a huge amount of mental pressure and mental stress. And I, I remember you kind of described this process when you, you were back at camp that you, you had to obviously pick the bodies off the ground and bring them back. And a gentleman went into the the car yeah the, how, how did that come about <laughs> not a car it's an armored vehicle right so basically there was a total of 20 militia mm. who were killed in action and nine taken as pow's prisoner of war after this massive battle that we and others were involved in once the battlefield was um, secured by us. Mm. There was a there was basically an order from brigade, which is our higher intent, that they believed that Bravo One, which is the main militia leader, mm. was either killed or captured. And if he was killed or captured, it would the whole dynamics of the rest of the tour would have been completely different. It would have changed, and they knew that. But the only way to make sure that that was the case was to go back and re retrieve these bodies, load them up into these vehicles, take them back to our camp. And mm. um, and then the, the the medical side of it would deal with DNA um, to find out, you know, if Bravo One was killed or captured. Mm. But it was the worst, in my opinion, the worst decision ever made. Mm. I mean, it's hard enough taking a life, you know, from close quarters, you know, and I talk about my involvement in that with you know engaging a young 17 year old and you know he was just about to engage me i was you know i was quicker and i put sort of engaged him into his chest and into his throat and having that so intimate engagement 
the noise, the the choking. You know, it's 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 hard yards because that just never you can't. You, you, I can manage it now, but you can't just switch it off and never think about that ever again because it's 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 a war scar, mm. it's a battle scar, and it's and it will stay with me for forevermore. You know, he's seventeen years old. This young fighter was. Yeah, you know, my son now is nineteen, and just starting his his life as a young as a young adult. Mm. So as I've you know growing up, I do think about that because. He had no no adult life, basically, mm. and it's um, and I know it's realities of war, and people do say, yeah, but if it wasn't, you know, if it wasn't him, it was it was you, and then my sons grow up, or Bailey grows up without a dad, and I get that, but until you've been through what I've been through, it's I don't look at it like that, and then to have them to go back and pick this lifeless body up. You know, and carry the, him onto the vehicle and load him up onto the vehicle, knowing it was you that that you mm-hmm. know ended this individual's life. I tell you what, it's it's difficult to to manage sometimes. It's hard. And how did you, when you returned, how did you start to process that? And what what were the steps that you took to to? I mean, aside from the, the court case, which by the way, I couldn't even imagine after the trauma you went through, then having the mental strain of essentially lies yeah. thrown at you. Um, how did you kind of manage that that trauma? Do you think there's any steps that you could guide people on to sort of try and manage no, I that? Got it. I got it all wrong, if I'm honest. Um, but I wasn't educated mm. on, and it's in 2004, we were, well-being was not even touched on. Mm. It was stiff upper, upper lip, get on with it you know, let's move, let's keep moving and let's keep attacking. Mm-hmm. That's the mindset back then. It was nothing was ever spoken about on post-trauma, what it is, that, what it looked like. And I was involved in a, in a lot of, of, of trauma within my military career. You know, I was involved in the first, the first of May, I was involved in a massive um, ambush, which we're heavily um, under, under siege, Mm. you know two missiles come straight for the side of our vehicle cause carnage in the back of this vehicle we were not it all injured ourselves up to our knees in diesel there was a fire it was just utter madness mm. um managed to survive that you know weeks later involved in the battle of danny boy which was absolute that wild. was that was very close then so because yeah. I, I remember you describing this process you had, you had a bit of shrapnel in yeah, your arm the, the the gunner had was it shrapnel or he'd been shot through his groin? No, the gunner was burning. Um, oh my god! There was Cruz, the lad opposite me, had a massive, massive chunk of shrapnel that was smashed his nose to pieces, really, and it was stuck in his face. And Irv, the lad in the back, had been pebble dashed with um, with from the explosion of shrapnel mm. all around his legs and was like heavily bleeding. And then the floor of this thing was like filling up with diesel. I was choking with the smoke. It was like not a great situation to be in because I didn't have control of what was going on. I mm. wasn't the driver of the vehicle to get us out of this killing area. That's what we call it. Like when you're really vulnerable and mm. you're like being yeah, in a choke point that you're getting smashed mm. and you've got no way of getting you out of there. We're just like waiting to explode basically. It was, it was, and I speak about it in the book that, I was more in fear 
in the back of that vehicle than I was going over open ground into that you know, position to run Danny Boy because I could control that. Yeah, I was going to say, do you think it was because you're, you're essentially stuck yeah. in this vehicle? I yeah. was stuck in the vehicle. We were stuck in the vehicle and I could hear it getting battered and then there was chaos inside and it's like, you know, this is mad. So that was the 1st of May. Yeah. 14th of May was, was Danny Boy. Right. Um, and I think before the 1st of May, a, a very good friend and incredible leader that I wanted to imitate was was hit by a petrol bomb on his helmet that engulfed you know his upper body and I've not seen skin lever a torso like it before his tattoo was just it would come off it skin was just dripping off you know I, that had happened as well and Danny boy and then later on after I think it was the first of June. Uh, Johnson Bahari was then hit by, you know, a rocket propelled grenade launcher, pretty much direct, and we had to drag him out. Me and Coops dragged him out of the vehicle, unresponsive. So that was just that tour, and then my second tour um, of Iraq, there was just there was more trauma because unfortunately um, one of the lads um, put a light machine gun in his mouth and pressed the trigger. And you know, I was like third person onto onto that scene as well, and it was just like that was horrendous. And um, it's just what it just seemed to be one thing after the other, mm. but not knowing how to kind of deal with it mm. once you return, it's it was like sort of self help. There's no such thing as self help, yeah, because you haven't got the tools or the capability to to help yourself you just kind of manage it and it's not good because you start doing a lot of shit that you shouldn't be doing Mm. whether it's your temper drinking yeah yeah. boozing even like i never i I, for me i never used you know alcohol as kind of a a shield Mm. i was quite angry and very verbal um the the way i was which wasn't good enough it was that's that's like one thing that i definitely got wrong and i wish i could go back and change but you know i've learned from it um but yeah i mean there was nothing really there to to give you an understanding of what what it is that you've just gone through so one minute you're fighting like mad next minute you're home through the door like many i left my son when he was like four weeks old and i've come back and he's like you know, this growing yeah, this baby who's now six months old, who's now not in a Moses basket, who's in a pushchair. Mm. I'm like trying to play catch up as a as a father, getting mm. a lot of stuff wrong, being very frustrating, probably resenting the relationship that Bailey had with his mum because they were so mm. close and rightly so. Like no one really asks how the women do when they're on their own, trying to get on with life. Before we move on with this podcast, I need to ask you a really quick favor. If you could hit that subscribe button, five-star button, follow button, whatever it is, wherever you are, I would really appreciate it. We're trying to reach our next goal of 1,000 subscribers, followers, listeners, whatever it might be, and you would really help us get there. If you have ever taken any value from these podcasts, then please consider hitting that subscribe button. And with that said, let's get back to it. Yeah, I mean, no one really talks about the women 
who are at home who all of a sudden are single mums because their husbands or their wives are actually away so the husbands are at home you know trying to deal with with newborn trying to figure it out you know i was quite selfish i was like deal with it basically mm-hmm. which is like a, a really poor attitude to have but like i was 23 i didn't know how to be a dad and i just kind of left her to it but then when i came back i then wanted to be this dad and it was it was all very frustrating but people that stay behind when their you know husbands or or wives go away they are the unsung heroes and they're people that don't get enough credit in my opinion because they do just as much um for the family if not more than than what we do for, for sure so um yeah, they should never be forgotten about because they sacrifice so much as well. And they have to then take the brunt on us coming home mm. and not being very nice and trying to understand how to be at home again because it's a massive change. It's a huge change. Six months away, even if it's not war fighting, is a long time for being away. Mm-hmm. So you have to be patient. You have to give yourself a bit of time and then reintegrate You know, at a, at a slow pace um, and that's sort of my advice uh, on that really it's hard for a 23 year old though to to understand and know that mm. um so you you get home you have this kind of shock to the system so to speak and then this public inquiry is announced by this lawyer and, and by the way I, I listened to something that you said that i think is really quite inspirational there's this lawyer that's throwing fictitious stuff at you really because yeah. it's, it's fake what he's saying it's not factual and you said that in your book um double crossed you could have gone for him you could have slandered him you could have slated him but you never did that no. um and you even tried to reach out to him to get him involved in the the movie yeah um and i think that's such a key point of a of a, of a leader because you don't want you don't want involved past past let's leave it bygones be yeah. bygones even though he really put mental torment on you oh it's torture but listen you're not going to get anything out of hurting someone who's already injured like he is is in the press Mm. he's a shyster you know he is not a very nice human being but i will never put a knife into someone and twist it when they're injured it's Mm. i'm better than that you know and i i didn't rinse him in the book i highlighted the damage that he caused mm. and I highlighted a lot of other stuff that you know the the Ministry of Defense you know needed to change and maybe have a look at some of the procedures that they've got mm. and maybe tweak them or change them because they weren't good enough um, but I'm always about growth mm. and learning that no organization is perfect we get it wrong Shine I got it wrong I spoke about it and wrote about it in the book. The MOD got it wrong in areas. I wrote about it and highlighted it in the book, but I didn't smash them. Mm. I didn't, I'm not, there's no point. What's that going to achieve? It's going to achieve nothing. He's Mm. got to live with his lies. He's got to live with the effect that it caused on so many and the hurt and the pain and the separations and the, the, you know, fueling trauma, fueling drugs, drink, ending people's careers. He's got to live with that. Whether he's got a conscious or not, that's, that's immaterial. Mm. You know, he's got to live with that. 
He's got to go to the shops. And the great British public are brutal, you know. Yeah. They will do the punishment for me. Mm. They will have it out. They will, you know, do the comments and make the comments. Mm. He's got to live with that. And actually now he's going into the stand next year. Um, and he's up against some pretty punchy allegations, which, mm. well, they're not even allegations. It's the truth. So he'll probably go down uh, for an element of time. So it, like karma is a thing of you, isn't it? It's it, If you try and do the right thing and if you believe in it, no matter how hard it is, and it was like, listen, I I struggled a lot when, when the inquiries were announced because I had photographers outside my door. I had IHAT, which is a, you know, a historical allegations team after me asking questions to my brother. You know, it was the most pressure that I've ever been under. And that was the first time that I was like, I need to go and get help. Mm. I need to go and see a psychiatrist because I am under some mad pressure. And I couldn't get away from the, the Battle of Danny Boy. I couldn't get away from the trauma. I just couldn't shake it. So this was everything from all of the statements I now had to write and read and go through and then visit lawyers. I just couldn't shake it. And I was pretty broken if I'm honest. And um, that was when I was down at Linston because I was a colour sergeant instructor. So quite a, a senior job, uh, basically instructing corporals to become sergeants within the Royal Marines. Mm. I was um, the army instructor there. And um, it was there when I actually went and got some advice on the support that then followed. And it was hard because I needed to display the same courage that I showed during the most intense fighting, but in a completely different arena. Mm. I was at home in the UK, but pretty broken. But I had to display the this, the courage that I'd shown, but in a different battlefield. Mm. This is in my head now, which is, I mean, as, as you well know, it's a battlefield that you can't really understand because it's such a powerful bit of kit, your, your mind. Mm. But I needed to do something and it was the first time then you know, that I sort of spoke about all the legacy stuff that I'd been involved in and got that out of my system, which was like a massive shift in weight off my shoulders. Mm. And then spoke about the allegations and what came with the allegations and how to manage that and how to deal with the pressure mm. and how to deal with like the post-trauma. And then started to go through these sessions, which were, in, were incredible. It was a game changer really for me because I then got to understand sort of why I was feeling certain ways, certain smells, um, you know, punching in to to positions and, and, you know, and how I could deal with that sort of daydreams mm. and how I could deal with them daydreams because it used to make me feel like, I don't know, heart was racing thinking, oh, I don't want to be going back there again, but I could now manage that because I understood why, you know, mm. I was doing them sort of, I thought it was just, it, then I just went on a growth spurt. Yeah. I thought, right, I just need to grow through what I've learned now and just, you know, keep moving forward. I think a huge part of it as well, and I think that men specifically really struggle with this because there is kind of a stigma about it, is accepting that something is wrong. Yeah. It, accepting that you actually... Which accountability again, isn't it? Exactly. It's being accountable for what's going on within your head. For yourself. And Yeah, and uh, your feelings. 
Yeah, and it's accepting that, you know, say that you are suffering from from a bout of uh, either PTSD if you, or anxiety or depression. It's accepting that there is something wrong and I need to have, as you said, the battle in my mind and I need to start moving forward. Yeah. And, you and have to have the courage to go in, one, acknowledging there's something's not right, mm. but more importantly, doing something about it. Yeah. And that is so important because, listen, we can have the best care hubs around the UK, multi-million pound hubs, which have got everything there for you. But if you ain't going to be accountable, if you're not going to you know, go and use these, then they're going to stay empty. Mm. So it's down to us as individuals to understand something's quite not right. And it could be anything. It could be gambling. It could be drugs. It could be drink. It could be pressure at work. It could be anything. Mm. It's, it's fine. It, there is no problem if you go and get something, you know, done about it. Mm. And it will absolutely be a game changer. It, when you, you, you described this process of you had this um, really traumatic experience followed by then another mentally traumatic experience. Uh, and now looking into your future, you're running marathons daily. It's some of the things you're doing um, are, are absolutely blow my mind in a really inspiring way because a lot of it is for charity a lot of it's for your business um, and it's really quite inspiring you find that and i've heard ses guys talk about this a lot when you're within a war zone that you only need to think of the next step and the next step and what we're we doing next and i think the, the the kind of um the thing about life is there's so many different things thrown at you that you're thinking about it all at once and that can cause this huge amount of pressure and stress so a lot of the SES and army guys after uh, they've served get into extreme sports mm -hmm. or running or, or quite extreme events because all they need to think about within that time is the next step. Yeah. And it's that kind of decompression time. Yeah. Do you think that that's quite uh, fit fitting for yourself? I think so. I think everything that we do is, it's always phased. Mm. Every, every operation is a phased operation. Phase one. Let's get to phase one and then we move on to phase two, phase two, phase three, phase four. And it's always spoken about. So everything that we do with a set of orders, they'll be phased. Mm -hmm. And it's really important. Step by step, so everyone knows when we're at the first step, when we're at the second phase, when we're at the third phase, and then you know, yeah, we'll then move forward. And I don't know, yeah, I think coming away from the military. The power of giving back is so important to me as well. It's so important because we're only two mistakes of being on our asses ourselves, mm. you know, and hopefully if I ever end up on my backside, there's some good people out there who are, are giving back. And that's how I see it. I should give back. As long as I'm breathing, I should do something. Mm. And I support the military charities and, um, and I'll put my body on the line like I did with the marathons in 2021 where I ran for the fallen from Afghanistan and Iraq and I pledged that I'd run 26.2 miles a day and each day I remembered 26 names which were written on the back of my shirt yeah. each day was a was was different names as we moved forward and I took each day as it came because mm. if I looked at that 25 marathons and 25 days as a whole I think I've got no chance <laughs> so I took it each day as it came and yeah. then each mile and just was just yeah, grinded it out. Just yeah. had to. I set myself this massive challenge, which the challenge 
the reason for the challenge was just so much bigger than me. Mm. I mean, this is remembering those who paid the ultimate sacrifice, which is huge. And when I started to go, then I started to have like loads of messages from families yeah. who, you know, I was running for, and that just gave me more energy and you know more desire to actually complete this. But it was it was a full on journey um, that I completed, and then twenty twenty two, I decided to go again. But this time I was going to bring on the Falklands, those who never made it home from the Falklands, because it was the 40th anniversary of the liberation. Yeah. And I was like, I'm going to go again. And now I did go again. And halfway through, I flew out to the Falklands. They flew me out there and I ran four marathons on the Falkland Islands, which was absolute nails. I mean, the hardest marathons I've ever done just because of the climate, the yeah. the elevation, the wind. Oh, it was nails. But I took my dad with me because if there's anyone that was going to be able to motivate me and give me that clarity and that sense of direction was my dad. Yeah. So he was my safety driver and my inspiration. And I just got out every day and just like, yeah, just ran as just best it. as I could. Yeah. And um, I managed to complete that. And then actually recently I just completed the um, toughest foot race in the world, which is the Marathon de Saabs. And I had to ask myself some serious questions on that. I mean, that was like another level of yeah. or resolve. It was really hard. Mm. I mean, the heat was just unbearable. It was we were unfortunate because we had a heat wave during during the event, and it's hot out in the Sahara anyway that time of year. But this was just like bonkers heat, and yeah. a lot of people were just going down all over the place with heat exhaustion. But I survived, mm. got over the line, and um, yeah. So them three challenges. Um, that I've done over the last three years have raised, you know, I'm probably on about £200,000, which is amazing. There, they're about, it's not far off. So, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll keep doing, yeah, I'll keep doing stuff for, for others because it's important to give back. And, um, yeah, it's been a mad journey, really. And, and finally, there's, I don't want to leave, but I know that you've got a speech, so you'll yeah, have to. Have so to. there's there's two questions that come to mind. One is, tell me about your watch. Ah, so this this is quite sentimental, really. It's an Amiga Seamaster. And I've always loved growing up um, watches. Mm. And, you know, I've, I always sort of bought what I could afford, which is like an Amani watch, because it was like not like an exclusive watch or like a like a top-end watch, but it's a watch that I could afford and it still looked quite nice. But I just couldn't afford a, a, a nice sort of expensive watch. But when I got back from Afghanistan, mm. you have an operational bonus money. Mm-hmm. And I was like, I'm going to sacrifice a family holiday to get this watch. But I've always <laughs> wanted a nice watch. Just yeah. one would have done. I mean, I'm very fortunate to have done work with Bremont as well. Mm-hmm. which have been incredible to me with some of the timepieces that I've got, just mm-hmm. incredible. But this, I got after my tour of Afghanistan. And yeah, I'm, I don't wear it very often, but it's, it's gorgeous and it has a lot of meaning yeah. um, for me. And time is very important for me, especially like in the army. I mean, time is critical. It's not flexible. Yeah. You make sure that... You know, you've got to be at, at the right time, right place, mm. ready to ready to move, and everything's done on time. So, 
time in in the military is a is a great fit to to wearing um, a gorgeous timepiece. Yeah. So yeah, and a sentimental attachment, something that you can never never replace, is it? No, no, you can't. And um, like I said, I don't wear it often, but when I do, it's it feels good. I'll never get rid of it. Yeah. No, nah, it's got too much behind it. Yeah, it's got too much behind it. Yeah. And I, you know, I worked hard for it. So, yeah, it's all, um, it's a thing of beauty. <laughs> and on a final note, we've gone over a ton of stuff about the, the leadership process and the leadership that you kind of um, instilled to your men. If there's one lesson or, or, or some advice that you could give about leadership to people listening to this or watching this, what do you think it would be? Be inclusive. Be courageous. Be approachable. And don't be scared to attack. And that could be a project, that could be a business goal, that could be your target within business. Don't be scared to attack what is achievable because sometimes fear overwhelms people and they don't want to get out of their comfort zone and really go and push the boundaries. And as a leader and as a manager, you have to display courage and you've got to go on the offensive because nothing's going to be given to you. If you want to improve and you want to promote and climb, you've got to go on the offensive, but you also take the people with you. You be inclusive and you give them the tools that they will need to then attack behind you because that's what it's it. Infectious leadership is so important. Be by example. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And just a little one, anyone that wants more details, Double Cross is your book. Yeah. Incredible read and truly inspirational story. So thank you. Yeah. Also the film, because Double Cross was then yeah. um, made into a film and it's called Danny Boy and it's yeah. available on Sky actually. And it's my life story. And um, you get to see how steadfast Lucy was with me during some real demanding time. So if you're bored on a on a Friday night or after work, <laughs> a couple of beers, <laughs> have a have a have a little watch of uh, of Danny Boy because it's on yeah it's on Sky so it's all good. Right. I appreciate that, mate. Thank you. No worries. Thank you.